Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Rishi Jha with Data Fundy Space and The Deep. Today I'm going to guest host and interview two of my colleagues, Jimena Kontla and Najid Orozko Borokez. We are going to discuss chat GPT and our use of AI language models to support Turkey and Syria earthquake response. Joining us, Selvan Riderinkov and Brent Phillips are going to help co-host too. This month, Sylvan and Brent are going to be hosting a session on ChatGPT and generative AI models at IADI's upcoming community summit in Copenhagen. Welcome, everyone. To get things started, Jimena, would you like to introduce yourself? Then Najid, Sylvan, and Brent, you can go ahead. Yeah, thanks. So my name is Jimena Kontla, and I am currently working with the Deep. That is a data entry and exploration platform that is basically developed by Data Friendly Space, this small NGO I work in. And what we do is basically bring technology to the humanitarian sector. So I am there currently the manager for the natural language processing team, the NLP team. And I'm very glad to be here with you today. Hello. Hi, everyone. My name is Nachidorosko. I'm the product lead at Deep. Thank you for the invitation. But me, I'm an electronic engineer by degree and happy to learn and to apply NLP models in the in different sectors. Today, I have the opportunity to be working in the humanitarian sector and very happy to, to be supportive with the latest news and trends in terms of machine learning and AI. Hi, I'm Silvan. I am a software engineer slash data engineer for a small company called Zimmerman from the Netherlands. And we operate in the humanitarian aid sector. And we are very interested in the use and utilization of the new NLP tools that are more and more popular these days. We try to focus on utilizing these tools for both searching through data through a more conventional way by, for example, retraining the models that are provided or indexing our own textual information. But as you can understand, maybe contextualizing a million rows of data can take quite a while. So some other avenues that we're trying are synthesizing and simulating search engines through these NLP models. So yeah, we're very interested in where this can take us as a company, but also where this can take us as the humanitarian aid community. Hi, I'm Brent Phillips. I produce the Humanitarian AI Today podcast. And as a quick note for listeners, I'm going to join in guest hosting this interview. Background-wise, I've been involved in humanitarian operations since the 1990s. Back then, email and the early internet felt as new and full of potential as generative AI does today. Like many humanitarian actors, I feel like I've been waiting for a very long time for us to be able to share our needs and learn how to help others through conversational interfaces like ChatGPT. So I'm looking forward to learning how initiatives like Data Friendly Space are putting large language models, like ones powering ChatGP, to use. Before we return to the interview, as a quick note for listeners, this interview was recorded in March 2023, just before Sylvan and I spoke at IADI's Community Exchange in Copenhagen. And now back to the interview. Jimena, would you like to give us an overview of what Data Friendly Space and the Deep do, and what's Deep Surge Analysis Cell? 
So Data Friendly Space, as I mentioned before, it's an NGO that basically what we want to do is give the humanitarian organizations more time to focus on what matters most. That's our kind of slogan. And this is because we try to bring technology and uh, to the humanitarian sector. It's a it's an NGO that was built not long ago, actually 2016. And since then, we have been working together with different partners to help them build their data structures. We also giving some platforms, websites, and also help them structure data, analyze data, and all of these data services. So this is basically what data friendly space does. And continuing with the deep, the deep is the data entry and exploration platform. It's a platform we've developed after the earthquake of 2015 in Nepal. And the idea was to basically make sure that we had a platform that could handle qualitative data. Because we've seen in the humanitarian sector that we have all of these tools that we use to create and structure quantitative data, but there was not a single place where we can have qualitative data being able to be handled, basically. And since in an earthquake, the first thing that that we see is a lot of information that is unstructured going on from one side to another. So there was a gap over there and the inspiration, this was basically the feeling this gap was the inspiration for creating the deep. You can go to the deep.io to look into our platform. It's that basically helps us structure these data using what we call a humanitarian analysis frameworks and going, it helps us go through the whole analysis spectrum from getting the data all the way to structuring it. it. And currently we're developing also a model in order to analyze it. So it's probably worth if you want to have an open source free tool to structure your your analysis, especially targeted to the humanitarian sector, to go and see the deep. And within this deep, we now are actually having different teams that are working within the deep. And one of these teams is basically the outreach team, which also hosts what we call right now the deep search analysis cell. And for this earthquake that just happened in, in Turkey and Syria, this was the first time that we activated the deep search analysis cell that what we do is basically give reports from day one of, the, of what happened in the earthquake. So we sent a cell of analysts that basically support themselves using the deep to create these reports from all the information that we could get from sources like Redifwa to feed the humanitarian. So you can basically look into these reports that we created in our website at afriendlyspace.org. You will find there a link to our, to our reports. And we have the reports from day one of the crisis. And and currently we we are only con- covering like the government controlled Syria, like the northern Syria, northwest Syria for this week onwards. But at the beginning we were producing daily reports of situation for both Turkey and, and Syria and then like weekly reports and so on. So this is basically the search cell that it's gonna finish quite soon, if I'm not mistaken, because we only cover the first part of 
of the crisis. And then we expect other humanitarian actors that are basically already established that will be there for longer to continue and use this work for their own purpose if, if needed. For our listeners, many of whom are just students and AI developers interested in humanitarian applications of artificial intelligence, can you give us a feel for what earthquake response is like? And you know what was the situation like on the ground across Turkey and Syria based upon what the kind of reports that you saw and what were the needs on the ground and who was responding and what kind of information was sort of floating around? Sure. Well, I think I forget to mention my, my background that I used to be a humanitarian analyst a responder like <laughs> for like like 12 years or something I was in the field. So I hope I can give a little bit of, of that memory also to, to be, but of course I was not there at this time. So in, well, Syria and Turkey on the 6th of February, two major earthquakes occurred. It was basically, there were basically not earthquakes like that in the last year. So it's like 7.7, 7.6 earthquakes occurred. And that February affecting more than 13.5 million people. After that, there were again more quakes. So the aftermath of it has been hitting the the region also for for the last months. Of course, with these two of the stronger earthquakes in actually more than 100 years, that we can imagine what happens when an earthquake hits. So there's a lot of buildings collapse. So normally we will have people that run from their houses. So a lot of affected population that get displaced, people that are injured, major injuries from the tremors and from the collapse of buildings, people displaced. And since it's a region that it's very close to Syria, the displacement went back and forth from, from Syria and, and, and Turkey. Of course, the priority would be the basic service in both cases and shelter, definitely. People will need like non-food items, but also food items and, and the displacement. So... The main issues I will say are issues of people that basically have no house and they are basically hosted in small camps and in small places where, where they are having to spend the nights. And of course, this head over winter, which has been a very hard winter. So winter clothing, access to basic services are normally what we have there. But as I said, is this hit also in a country where, where we had a a long period of a protracted crisis, as we call it, that is Syria. So we can imagine that the humanitarian situation was aggravated in those areas. So I think like overall, I will summarize like that. And, and of course, as every time there is an earthquake, there's a lot of things that happen with displacement. I don't know, families get separated, children get separated from their mothers. There's a lot of people that died so, and, and, and these deaths, of course, are normally, we don't know who died definitely, but normally are heads of households or, you know, people that are coming with the income. So the, the situation definitely is, is very damaging. And as I said, it happened in this place where it's also very close to, to Syria, so it's between Syria and Turkey. So already, the already kind of hard situation that was, that was basically 
deteriorated with this with this record. Yeah, <laughs> in general, I would say it's like that. I would just like to add two clarifications. There is that regarding the deep surge analysis cell. So the first deep surge analysis cell was activated during Pakistan floods. It was not yet officially like we called it. We, we had not secured grants or anything. It was our initiative that if anything crisis of this nature happens, we don't have time. We cannot wait for applying for grants and getting approvals. So we have we set up this team that goes into action, and then later we'll see. And another point I would like to clarify is that we started working in Turkey and Syria earthquake situation analysis, where we started publishing every like daily reports, and then we switched to biweekly reports as the situation calmed down. And now we are producing reports in Turkey and northwest Syria because we don't have much access to information on the ground from the government-controlled part of Syria. And I would really like our audience to check that we have a, a dashboard called turkiyeq.thedeep.io where we put all our reports and all, all the situation, all the number of casualties, building damage, and everything is updated there. What was it like working with all the different languages? And was it an interesting opportunity that ChatGPT arrived on the scene and that OpenAI has produced so many interesting large language models for dialogue translation? Regarding languages, we work with partner organizations. For instance, we are working with IFRC in Turkey. They have their local staff, they have resources, they have their team working on data tagging and everything, which we all like bring together and produce the report. And we had initially, we had IMAP involved. We have like OCHA providing the, the maps. So there's a lot of organizations involved in providing inputs there. Do you use like standardized tags or like when there's an emergency, do you take your standardized tags and then you have sort of custom tags for the crisis and the geographic location? So basically when we are working on a, a response, we using a selected framework, analytical framework, where we already have trained, so we have some standardized tags, and with that information, we can also assist the tagging of the analyst during the process. So we already have some models pre-trained. Once there is like new tagging information, we just, I mean, the analyst can do it manually on the system, adding a new analytical framework and selecting those new tags that are needed. But yeah, that's how we are working right now. Interesting. Nayid, I wanted to go back and just mention that you're based in Colombia. And Colombia is no stranger to crises, earthquakes and crises and civil wars. And it's really challenging working in an environment where you have so many displaced people and ongoing conflict. And then you have Venezuela nearby and you have refugees coming in from Venezuela. And, you know, it's challenging to work with data and in a sort of evolving humanitarian situation. So I'm sure you're bringing some great insight to the table in terms of working with you know, refugees and IDPs across Turkey and Syria. And what are you finding that's similar between Colombia and what you're working on now? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and as Jimena was pointing out, the needs are on an everyday basis. So basically from simple things as access to food, access to health, need of cash services. So I would say similarities are all over the ground. Also the way that you need to reach out to people or engage people also in a way that, for example, the beneficiaries at the first days of the response are, I mean, their minds are completely all over the place. They need to be treated in a very, very special way. So I would say it's, it's somehow similar. Of course, the 
prices are, are difficult. I would say in Colombia, we are facing a migration, big influx from Venezuelan community since the last years. And I had the opportunity to collaborate previously with another organization in NLP as well for accessing communities feedback and inform partners on those needs that people are arising every day. And now with Turkey and Syria, I would say the opportunity was to be right on the first day of the event and be very quickly on analyzing the data from open sources and providing to, in this specific situation, to OCHA, a supply tracker that was the use that we involved with ChatGPT and how these supplies are coming into the region and attending the, the crisis itself. Can you tell us more about the supply tracker? Like, what does the supply tracker do and what was the process like building the supply tracker? And I read that you used OpenAI's DaVinci model for it. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, maybe I was just going to like start, well, introduce like a little bit of it, and then I will ask you to continue. But I think this all came up, as you said, when we were all talking about using ChatGPT and we were all playing around with ChatGPT and then the earthquake hit. And, and I think it was very interesting to say, to see, because while we were using ChatGPT just to play around before we had like a real crisis, I think the, the humanitarian sector comments or the people that I was like, that we were interacting with, there were some that were very hesitant on how to use these models and they were very afraid. And then like the conversation, instead of saying like how we enable this or how we use this into our response, it was more like, how do we what we cannot do with this and what are the limitations of this instead of of saying like okay how we can actually use this technology in order to support ourselves and then the earthquake hit and then we we've been like asked you know to produce all of these reports and then at the same time we were asked to do some summaries from from the reports with our NLP team and then at some point, Najid said, like, okay, I'm still playing with it. So <laughs> let's see if we can use ChatGPT for structuring data. And then the, one of the first products that you need into in our response is what we call the three Ws. I don't know if you are aware of this term, but it's basically what, the, like, what we call like who's doing what, where, and it's a product that we normally use for the humanitarian response. Normally it's fed with data directly coming from the field so that it's basically given by the people or by the organizations that are working on site. But this time, these three Ws came also from the idea of like, okay, we, ha- we don't know what is actually happening in Turkey and we have all of these pledges and all of this information on the news and on the media. So can we do something with it? So now I give you the word <laughs> to basically talk about this device. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Yemen. That's another part of, of context there. We are currently working on some NLP models inside the deep. So we have NLP researchers working on the summarization, topic modeling, topic classification. So once the, the, yeah, the earthquake happened, basically OCHA asked us if we were able to supply a table or a chart in which we can first extract information from public available documents and add information regarding which agency, which country was providing the aid, which sector, which type of assistant was the one that was delivered, the location, and the status of that aid. So 
I mean, of course, our models not were tailored for those specific tasks, but what we needed or what we found was that part of our models, for example, we can extract text or scrap text from media articles, from we have different connectors for relief web, for example. So we started just playing around. The first test that we did was just to use ChatGPT with a simple prompt. So basically just ask, I will provide an article and please provide a table responding to the following columns, who's delivering the aid, in which humanitarian sector, and so on. And we start testing different models. From, I mean, the first stage was to extract the test from this relief web lead, then concatenate the prompt to each of those rows, and then basically just see which was the result of ChatGPT for that specific table. From there, we start also, there were for that time where there were four models, base models available in, in OpenAI, was Ara, Babash, Puri, and DaVinci. We tried all of them and we start seeing, yeah, like with DaVinci, of course, the most powerful one, also the, 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 the most pricely, pricey, we, we got the best results. So we needed to move fast. We started with some trials, also kind of getting this chart ready. And we start iterating on that supply tracker. So the first response for Ocha was, okay, this is something that we would like to have. They were very pleased with this first kind of step. And then, of course, the chart evolved. And we, we, only, we not only included the organization, the humanitarian sector, but we also now included the quantity, for example, and some specific locations. So we were using ChatGPT to infer the information from the text. And we were just working and testing different prompts and seeing in which kind of yeah, way we can just adjust and fine tune the model yeah, to get the result that we want. Something that we want to, or, or I want to, to point out here is that we have not trained the model on our own. We were just using the raw model, just trying to play it with it very quickly. And since March 1st, that the ChatGPT uh, API officially was launched, we migrated to that one. Of course, the cost decreased by a tenth percent. So yeah, we we are basically now updating that part, and we are updating the file and the supply tracker on a recurring basis. On top of that, and, and just last thing here, we are also having a deep pipeline which includes entry extraction, classification, summarization, and geolocation. So basically, we have two streams. The first one, we got the lead. We pass them through ChatGPT with the API, but also we got those links and we use our pipeline to complement the supply tracker and inform the analyst on the summarization and geolocation of that specific articles that we are yeah, like managing at that time. So yeah, that's kind of the, the supply tracker and the way that we came to it. Right now, as I, I, I told, we are updating it on a bi-weekly basis. And yeah, that's the supply tracker story. Rishi, if you don't mind, I'd like to bring on Sylvan. You know, it's a great coincidence because uh, next week, Sylvan is going to be talking about data summarization using the Curie model from OpenAI. And Sylvan, do you want to just give us a quick overview of where your interests lie in document summarization? And do you have any questions for Naid and Jimena and Rishi? Yeah, of course. Starting with the summarization itself, we basically, specifically for the IATI dataset, there's a lot of information available there by default, by just the information that is provided within the base fields. So there's descriptions, 
titles, etc. But also there's these additional fields called document links, which actually provide, over, I think, over a million links to outside documents. So these are documents that may provide additional context to the activities that are published. And what that means is that we can enrich the information that we have about these activities just by going through these additional documents. And then you know, the, the simplest way of doing it is to just include everything from these documents. It would be the most complete and it would be the most fair. But on the other hand, then maybe our currently 500 gigabyte data store would go into like a couple of terabytes. So maybe that's a less optimal solution. So what we were considering was doing it through summarization. So we went through and we, I mean, we, we tried several different ways. We tried a lot of open source stuff. We tried some paid stuff. And yeah, at, at the same time, ChatGPT kind of started booming. So it became more and more interesting. And yeah, there you can see like, oh, well, this might just be a very good opportunity to try to ask, well, ChatGPT or one of these other models like the Curie model to be like, oh, well, let's make a summary. What's the most interesting keynotes that you can take from this information that we're providing? And at least do a lot of cool results. And you can then start to combine this as well with the ChatGPT and any other integration. I think using the word ChatGPT is quite a generic term now for using any of, of the OpenAI models. But but yeah, integrating that additional information as well into your querying. And this really... Yeah, allows you to find a lot more information that maybe you wouldn't find without this summarization. Sylvan, what do you think of the project, the Turkey-Syria Earthquake Response Project? And do you have any questions for uh, Naid and Helena from your vantage point? Yeah, first of all, it's really impressive work. The speed at which it's being produced is very impressive. And also the outcome is, of course, very impressive. So that's, that's something I just wanted to mention. And well, I think one of the main questions that I would have personally as a developer, just from a development perspective, what is the direction that you're looking forward to taking this? Is this something that you want to keep at this level, like just using ChatGPT or using OpenAI's models to support it? Or do you want to transform this into using purely your own models or even moving forward and combining the two, starting to fine tune different models, et cetera? That's a great question, Sivan, and I will also let compliment me here, but as you pointed out, right now we have at the deep pipeline, we are currently working on some models, but we found that ChatGPT can enhance those models and also let us play with, as you also mentioned that, Sivan, probably our models can get some limitations based on the data that we have been them on, and with ChatGPT we can just be open to play with it. I want to mention one thing that is important here and is the quality assurance or the creation of the data. Once you are getting results from ChatGPT, that was something important also for the supply tracker because, yeah, you can have information out of that and just put it on the chart and make it available online. But you also need to be sure that what you are getting is in line with what you expect. So the, that uh, quality assurance part, it's, it's key for us. And right now we are also kind of thinking on, okay, we will continue updating and training our models, but how we can also use ChatGPT and any other models that are appearing right now this year that can enhance the, yeah, the services and the NLP features that we are having our platform. From a developer point of view, we need to work more on those adaptations, the scalability of them as well, 
and how, for example, the pricing and everything can be done. Because, you know, I mean, on our end, we can train the models using cloud services and kind of putting them out there. But also pro- probably for some scale purposes, there are some models that could be also cheaper, for example, for summarization purposes or, or things like this. So, yeah, I will give him a word and, yeah, over to you. Yeah, and I think, yeah, just to complete a little bit of, on, on what Naid was saying, it's like, uh, yeah, where we're trying to use kind of both, you know, we also have to think that part of our, what we want to do also here is like ethical AI, right? So, so by developing our own models and by developing our own transformers, we are testing a lot of things. For example, currently we're working on a paper that it's basically going to be the master thesis of one of our engineers. It's unbiased. So one thing is what we have to see how biased are our models, our data sets, and, and to see what is it that it will, you know, when we apply that to the humanitarian sector, what would that look like and what are what is the impact on those models in the humanitarian sector so by developing our own models i think it we we can kind of have a little bit of control over that but then when we are enhancing them we are also adding up another layer of complexity which is great and we try to use both you know in a kind of harmonious way and of course trying to reduce the harm that we can do because at the end of the day, we are working with, 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 with people and we are working with data that will have an impact on the humanitarian sector. So I believe that this is, this is making sure that we can use both in the full potential with no harm as basically the challenge that we have currently in, in this sector. Rishi, I can see you thinking about partnerships and uh, where AI is headed, humanitarian applications of AI, and what's on your mind relative to partnerships and ways of leveraging technology and ways that data-friendly space and deep and collaborate with others? And do you have any these sort of projects in mind based on what's been going on? I mean, in general, like deep was the project deep was initiated during the earthquake, like it, in the aftermath of earthquake in Nepal. And I was also in that earthquake. As a Nepali, I was in Kathmandu and I remember and but I don't remember, I didn't know deep at that time. I didn't even know what is humanitarian data analysis. And so deep has evolved quite a lot. It is also the perhaps the largest repository of annotated humanitarian documents so that gives us a privilege to work on models and experiment. So I think deep is very open to collaborate. We would love to work with the research institutions, universities who would like to put one of their students or a PhD student to do, to do a paper or a whole project on it. And we'd be happy to welcome, welcome those partnerships. On other side, I think we would like more and more humanitarian organizations to use this platform because there are still like, there are many organizations, they still, it, it, it's much more easy to go and get like existing platforms like Tableau or RBI, so people are used to it. And for Deep, we're also providing regular demos for, for people who want to do qualitative data analysis. So I think the ideal situation for me would be if the Deep becomes like the humanitarian open street map, where everyone kind of is aware of how to use it, how to analyze data in, a, in their needs, in their sector, in their 
particular region and that kind of collectively makes the models or, or the whole platform much stronger. ChatGPT is kind of synonymous right now with applications of AI for question answering applications. And, you know, ChatGPT has really kind of changed the world in a sense. And we really benefited from OpenAI's launch of ChatGPT. And I think the humanitarian community has really benefited from Deep. And I think we need initiatives like yours that are sort of blazing the trail in these areas and that people can kind of coalesce around. And I, I think your work is really amazing and I appreciate what you guys are doing. Back to kind of ChatGPT and humanitarian applications of AI. So next week, Sylvan and I are going to be giving a session on ChatGPT and generative AI models to humanitarian actors. And from your vantage point, what sort of common questions do you find aid organizations asking themselves about AI and applications of AI and now about ChatGPT? What, what would you expect the people in the room with us next week are going to be thinking and asking themselves? Yeah, I would say, friends, on my end, probably three questions that come more often are, first of all, reliability of the response that the tool is providing to you. So if you have a quality assurance process and basically you can just yeah trust in what the tool is giving to you, of course, and, and just remember here that we are using the supply tracker only to infer information and not kind of come up with new things out of the article that is given to, to it. So we need to make sure that first that that's what we are getting. Second, if we see in the future that this kind of work can replace the work of an analyst, because in the humanitarian sector, the work of an analyst is, I mean, is very well yeah, acknowledged. So that's another question that, that we currently are facing. And the third one I would say is the scalability and kind of the openness of our tool to yeah, many people. So how we envision that we can give people the access to these tools and also which are other possible uh, NMP or even things that probably we are not envisioning right now, we can develop to be available on the tool. So I would say those are kind of the questions from my end that, that I'm getting the most. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we get the same questions, but I think I will go a little bit more into the part also of how ethical it is, you know, to use these this, this models like within the sector and to, you know, people sometimes afraid that machines can take their jobs. And, and I think these kind of fear is, of course, a very natural response of a human you know, in, in, in a human part, but like, how am I, am I not valuable enough anymore? But I believe that what we, and here also, what we're trying to do here, it's basically saying that, well, here, what you're doing is just getting, getting yourself like another tool, right? A, a helper that will allow you to do your work quicker. And maybe you don't have to, to spend like, you know, the amount of time that you had a as an analyst, trying to get all of these things on because when when you have this analysis job, it can be it can be insane when there is a crisis. It's it's like you get like no sleep, you get really a lot of a, a lot of stress. And these, I mean, when you have this help, you basically end up having for me a more human way of approaching things, you know. And of course, well, not having all of that amount of stress with in you and you have all of the support, your head is a little bit clearer to do your job the best way. So 
so for me it's it's also trying to give these sort of yeah like boys to 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 these tools as a way for people to be able to have a little bit more time for themselves so not 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 necessarily looking into the big picture but what it said that it can do for a humanitarian for a humanitarian analyst you know i used to be in that spot for a long time before and i would appreciate i would have appreciated to have something like that at that moment in life to say hey you know i don't have to be here like 24 7 trying to trying to get my brain out of in this problem and i think this is what we are making those machines for and and it's finally getting there on that note i would like to add not only like using the chat gpt in the humanitarian analysis context but taking help of the tool like for instance for communications how i use it is it's like I have an idea, I give it to ChatGPT and, and communicate. And I, I keep rejecting. I accept and reject. There's a game going on. And then point comes that that ChatGPT gives you something you're really happy with. Oh, this is great. And you're still like, oh, no, this I will still keep it the way I think. So there's a lot to play and, and you can be very efficient. If, if like maybe when there was no internet, we could not even imagine that we'd be doing a talk show people from Bogota, Mexico, Milan, Amsterdam, and in Portland doing one live show. And now we are so used to it. So I think ChatGPT, I think eventually will be a tool like this, like Zoom or, or like Google Meet. What kind of questions would you like to ask ChatGPT to test it, for example, and why? Like, for example, I'm interested in IATI data and it's XML data and it's got its nested data so I'd be curious to see how well ChatGPT can reach down to the bottom of these nests of data and bring together information from different parts of the XML just to test it to see if it can do it competently. But how would you like to test ChatGPT? Well, I think there's like a lot of ways in, <laughs> in which I will, I will see tools like ChatGPT go into. So I think for... For now, we are like for me. I, I tested like you know to to help use it again as a as a help for me. For example, I, I'm now writing a lot of blog posts. I wrote one using ChatGPT and our own and myself and Naid's <laughs> information, for example, to basically complete what we want to to say because we're using this machine too. So also giving it as a like a a personality, I guess, helps. We can we can look at our our little little piece on medium, and so I see it a little bit less on you know going and search for data in places that that are very difficult to access. I will I'll use it normally to help me get a little bit of a broader spectrum of all the sources that I can probably use in order to do my work in a very summarized way. For me, this is the power of these of these tool, and it's something that it has helped me with at least right now the things that I'm working on. And of course, we're using the models and so on. But I will say, in a personal level and a very practical way, for me, it's using it as a as a support for for my work. I will probably have to think a little bit more on on you know some of the things that we would like to use it further for our work in the NLP and Deep. But Naid probably has already an idea on on that. I can see his case on how to use it a little bit more. But yeah, on a personal level, I, I am using ChatGPT as 
as that, you know, something that it's helping me was an inspiration more, right? So it was like, probably I missed this. I can chat GPT, help me retrieve it. And then it's a back and forth. And I think it's, uh, as Rishi said, you know, it's, it's a reject and accept sort of game that we are playing there. But definitely it changes a lot of way of, of we, what we have been dealing with information, how we are dealing with data and how we are dealing with interacting with computers. I think, you know, before we just do ask Google search, right? So for a question, but now we just go to ChatGPT and we have like an answer that we can, that we can just basically understand naturally. You know, we don't have to go anymore and like, no, 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 it will give you that. I'm probably missing some link to some of the information that would be very useful. You know, to have a little bit of a, okay, you can go through this page and this page and this page and, you know, but, but I think that's, that's what I will be missing. Some of the bibliography of, of what it is, it is telling me. But at the end of the day, if I think of how humans are thinking, we don't give always a, I don't know, like the quote of someone and give exact book. Well, sometimes we do, but, you know, where to find that information. We just basically create it as we go as this conversation is happening, right? So yeah, we have some prompts, but at the end of the day, we just create it. And I think this is the magic of interacting with this, this sort of AI that allows us also to have this input to ourselves in order to create again, another sort of thought that is also very natural. So yeah. Yeah, for me, I would say, give us opportunity. And I need to be honest here, for example, to start a document and write and see the, the sheet in blank, for me, is, is difficult. So ChatGPT kind of diminishes or reduces. I mean, if I need to start working on a product requirement document, so I can just, okay, please give me ideas about this. And once you have those ideas, as Rich mentioned before, you can start like, okay, this I like, this I don't like, and start tailoring it or narrowing the, yeah, the information by yourself. I would foresee, and probably you, you may have heard about it, last week was a hackathon using the new API. So I'm sure there will be like new developments or yeah, any or various sectors in our product-wise. I would say we can use it first to lay out a roadmap, then go to the requirements, then even I mean, put a code in Python or JavaScript and ask it for what is this code doing or comment the code or find even errors or fix the, the code itself. So I think there are plenty of, of opportunities on our end. In the humanitarian sector, I would like to see GPT or other tools to be updated more frequently. I know like the last one was September 2021. So we can have more recent information for, for example, for a specific crisis or a specific responses from different humanitarians. And we can just aggregate that information and again, be sure that we are doing the quality assurance. I would say there could be a, a great benefit from people around the world just to go in and explore information on their own. All right, Sylvan. Yeah, I think the points that were brought up really makes sense. You can also think about how you could use a tool like ChatGPT to ask for relevant organizations to work with if you're looking from the perspective of an organization on the ground. And you're looking for organizations to work with because you run out of money using a tool like ChatGPT. Ask, what is a relevant organization for me? Who has worked in this region in the past? Who has been working on similar activities, not yet specifically here in Syria, but 
maybe in other regions, maybe in Pakistan or in Tur- Turkey even. So those are really cool applications that you can think of on each of the specific levels of users of humanitarian aid data, because it's not always just the analysts. It could be used for journalism. It could be used for connecting different groups to each other to really bring a fire to your uh, to your process. And I think for ChatGPT specifically, it's it's very interesting how to do that because you just, Najib, you just mentioned the data is now at September 2021. But if you now try to query a very specific piece of the IAT dataset, for example, you will not find it. it. It will not know about it. So how can we as the community ourselves fine-tune these models to ha- provide access to this data specifically? And as a data engineer, that's part of the fun where we get to figure it out. And yeah, it's, it's great to hear that other people are also thinking about this stuff. Obviously, as the applications of ChatGPT are basically endless, I think the amount of prompts that you can think of are endless, giving ideas to provide insight to journalists about these crises, all the way to, I have 4,000 euros left. Where do I spend it? What's the most useful place for me to send it now? Just to help as many people as possible to have a roof over their head tonight. I think that just, you know, with what Sylvain just mentioned, it just basically popped into my head. It's also also trying to see how long these models are going to be open and, you know, if they're going to be open and accessible to everyone. And for me, this is something that is very important because right now we are in this space where we can see ChatGPT having like also this paid version and so on and, you know, like quicker and whatever there's not people that are using and so on. So to say, yeah, this is a very useful tool for everyone. And now we can use it for free, most of us. How would we probably enable this sort of AI to be accessible to everyone? And do we have to? And for me, this is a question that it's popping up. And then also thinking, you know, I think we are in a very kind of good point for ourselves that we have access to these but there is a lot of communities that don't have access to this and then they're basically probably lagging on all of these powerful information that we can that we can get from ChatGPT. so for me it's also another question about like how would this breach you know like have this breach of inequalities again or or how is these you know these tools want to be really you know we're we're thinking on in a very i, I will say like westernized view on the usage of these tools and, and how we can leverage them but also it's like what would this mean for for changes in the society and, and also changes in inequality and how these can become you know a, a tool also for empowering or for diminishing also some some people that are not in a, in a place where they they can use and have access to these technologies so I think this is something that will come up also more and more. And if we feed these models, you know, with, to what extent we're going to start feeding them. And since we don't have the ownership of these models, you know, and they are kind of open, but not fully open. So then when would someone decide just to basically stop giving it to the people because they they had enough training and enough training and enough data on that. And I think this is always a risk that we can also yeah, take into account. And I just wanted to put it out there that there's some concerns that I will probably have myself in, in general. 
Rishi, before we close and ask everyone our famous closing question, would you like to offer any takeaways on this interview? You're the one who initiated this conversation by reaching out and sharing your work in Turkey and Syria, but, but any sort of final thoughts from your end? More than final thoughts, I would answer the question you had. What would be the question you would ask the chat GPT at the conference? And what I was thinking, actually, Jimena said exactly the same. And my question would be one line. Will you address the global digital divide? Hey, chat GPT, will you address the global digital divide? And that was what Jimena was saying. And how will you do that? Yeah, it's funny to think about what I would ask chat GPT prompt-wise. And I know personally at the moment, it's difficult to convince private sector companies, especially large companies, to share information through open data sharing frameworks about their giving, about what aid organizations they're helping and how, how they're doing so. And there's a lot of fears around, I don't know, information security and inf- the narrative. There's a lot of fears around narrative control and concerns that I don't even understand. But I would love to just ask ChatGPT, give me a perfect pitch for all of these companies, convincing them to please, you know, don't be afraid to share very simple information on giving for use by ChatGPT. So I'm curious to see what ChatGPT is going to say. So uh, I know time's getting short. We'd like to close these interviews by asking our famous question. Rishi, would you like to ask it? Before we close, we'd like to ask all of our guests to think about a futuristic AI application they would love to see exist and to describe it for us. What would you love to see? We start with uh, Jimena. Well, there are different ones that I would think of, but I will. I, I always wanted to have like these sort of kind of you know robot or amused robot that can also think about <laughs> like philosophical, deep philosophical questions. And I know you can also ask some of those to ChatGPT, but having this interaction to with with an AI that has existential issues, you know, existential problems of why it exists and why not, I think it would be a lot of fun. And that's a very personal view of it. And of course, it's it's something that probably is not going to be very much useful for humanity, but I will definitely love to have an interaction with an AI that can profoundly have questions about itself about the universe, about all of these questions. And maybe we are we are that AI, you know, that we are not that artificial, but maybe we are that as humans. So so yeah, I will go for, for an AI with a deep philosophical issues. <laughs> so maybe I'll jump in. And one of the things that really speaks out to me is having one central platform that is first of all free to use, which I think is a good thing to aim for as in the humanitarian sector and having that platform have a structured pipeline for unstructured data where instead of always having to go through a process of going from you have a data set to you want to have useful usable insight and knowledge about this data taking away all of these manual steps and that could go from automatic visualization generation about your data set. So it's unstructured. So you don't beforehand, you do not describe your data set. You do not map it to specific fields in a, in a visualization. 
just ask, for example, you can ask ChatGPT, hey, I have these fields. This is some example content for these. Give me some visualizations. And that way, immediately you go from having your data to immediately having 10, 20, 80 visualizations about your data. And that that's a first step. And it, it can go even further into general AI applications. Everyone knows about, you know, you can do clustering, but before you can do clustering, you need to know how to cluster your data set. Or what if the data set, or what if we infer from our data set, which fields we can use to cluster it, et cetera. So that's, yeah, I think that's for the future, that would be a really intriguing application to have available to everyone. So yeah, for me, the A application that I would like to see in the future, it's one that enables everyone, doesn't matter in which location you are, you can ask to it as ChatGPT does today, but not only in English or Spanish or French, but imagine just in a settlement, refugee settlement in Uganda, in Naki Valley, how in, in Swahili you can ask to a system, I don't know the device, could be a phone, it could be something new, even an old phone that you just hold or grab the phone and you can ask. And I know right now ChatGPT kind of answers and you can translate that and Whisper can also like go to from a speech text. But again, there are limitations in base of languages. So I just dream about like even for underrepresented languages, you can have that ability of having a tool, a Google search, for example, but enhanced with ChatGPT or either of those tools and that anywhere on the planet, you can just ask for it. And even for learning purposes or just for fun, have, have that exploration tool on your hand. That's good. I meant to ask you, are you writing your prompts in ChatGPT? Are you writing them in Spanish? And how's that going? <laughs> That's a great question. Now, I'm writing them in English. I have tried in Spanish. I also ask it as ChatGPT translated to different languages, and it works. Not so different. I mean, like I haven't tried Swahili, for example, but I'm doing, yeah, right now everything in English. But I, I do know that you can even ask ChatGPT to translate even the result, and it will give you the answer. Spanish works pretty well. So, yeah, I mean, not for this, but for prompts, like, you know, for other questions that are not necessarily related to work. Yeah, doing it in Spanish. So it works pretty well. And I know that also in Arabic somehow works. That's from, you know, so it, it, it actually works. Rishi, we've had you on the show before, and I know we've heard your answer to this posing question, but do you have a new one today? As we know, we all talked about earthquake in Turkey and Syria, and as I myself have lived through an earthquake of the same magnitude, I would really love if we could develop an app which at least gives us 10 to 15 minutes before the quake strikes. That would be like magic. Wow, that's really cool. I love that. Thanks everyone for joining this interview. It's been a really great conversation. I really appreciate your input on humanitarian applications of artificial intelligence. This brings this edition of Humanitarian AI today to a close.